our podcast with super fans Rose and Sam and Malika too. She's undecided if she even likes it. But we watched our game and talked about it because it's fun. We probe the wormholes, yes we do, because we have nothing better to do. So listen, here's our show. Welcome to our podcast. This podcast is called Probing the Wormhole a Stargate podcast. I am your host, Samantha, and I'm also here with Rose and Malika. Yay. (laughs) Yes, you have three of us, uh, three women discussing Stargate. Uh, The episode today is Uh, The Enemy Within, so two of SG-1. All right, so we start this episode in the control room where they are discussing, you know, various planets they're going to go to um, when the gate activates and you hear the gold splat, 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 splat against the iris. And so it sort of sets the stage for how this is going to go. Kowalski, you know, rubs his neck, says he has a headache. He goes to the infirmary. Well, let me barge right in as RDA okay. said uh, and say, if I feel like whenever a uh, character sort of rubs his neck and looks down we we know that something bad is going to happen to this dude later on. It, it's just the unwritten r- rule of of TV shows and movies. And then poor Kowalski, I do feel bad about him. Yeah, and that that actor Jay Avakoni, I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce his last name. He really wanted to appear in in more episodes than he actually did, and he was sad that he couldn't continue. Yeah, he got robbed. Yeah, he did. First command, I, he didn't even get to go on one mission. Oh, I know. Too bad they didn't have French Stewart come and play uh, Ferretti. <laughs> but, uh, I don't think we ever see Ferretti again after the first episode. Like yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. He's just like disappears into the... Yeah, that eye injury really uh, did him in, I guess. So the briefing room scene where Hammond and O'Neill and Kennedy and Teal'c are there, there's the, there's the whole struggle between like the good guys, like Hammond and O'Neill, who want to do the right thing and the powers that be. And this is the first time that we see that tension. You get like Colonel Kennedy coming up with his orders from whoever to like use Teal'c as a guinea pig. And then Hammond seems to have a direct line to the president who we can assume is Bill Clinton, right? In 1996 or 1994, either way, Bill Clinton, who is on the side of the good guys. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Pre-impeachment, pre-Monica Lewinsky Clinton. Uh, yes. Yeah. But was it pre-Super Predators? Because I think if you would have seen Tilk he would have been like, oh, black guy, super predator. (laughs) 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 Him and Hillary. And you get this, the first realization that Earth is this planet, this mythical planet that they had, that from whence humanity came. And that's the first time you really get that, which is cool. And it sort of sets the stage for, I, I mean, it sort of explains some things, right? That like why the humanity on these other planets hasn't evolved because they've been under the thumb of the gold and, and earth has evolved because they have had freedom from the gold. Um, and presumably also like one pet peeve of mine is like, there are, if there are all these planets and they have similar gravity to earth, they would be the same size as earth, right? More or less. And yet there's like only one village that's right near the Stargate. Like maybe you want to move to the other continents and see how the rest of the planet is. But I guess if Earth is from whence humanity came and they just picked small communities and transplanted them all over the galaxy, I guess it would make sense that they sort of 
kept them in one area, especially so that they can access the, them through the gate and put them to work and take out, or re, away resources and stuff like that. But that always pissed me off. I'm like, how come Earth has like 150 countries and every other planet has like one town on a whole planet? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, budget. <laughs> that, that explains it. But yes, they do encounter that problem quite a bit. I think there was one place they, they visit much later on where it has two countries. So, so we do get yeah. countries. And but- then they're fighting. So I'm like, maybe you should move to the rest of the planet. And you won't ever see each other and everybody will be happy. Right. Yeah. Problem solved. End of end of episode, end of show. Yeah. And then also we talked about this earlier, but everyone is very much the same colored skin, it, which isn't, it isn't realistic, especially if they take people, humans from different parts of earth and um, seed other planets with the humans. And they also speak English too. All speak English. Yeah, I know. It, it just, it shatters the like, you know, the suspended disbelief. And I'm like, just do what Star Trek did. Make some, you know, universal translator device that the gold have or the ancients have and, you know, just call it a day. But they don't even try, which really pisses me off. I'm like, at least try. And then the other thing is, you know, so, okay, so we get that Earth is this myth, this planet and, you know, the, the original Tari planet. So how did the gold find them if it's been lost to Earth? You know, how did this whole thing start? And so it must, my assumption is that it must have been just a random dialing and they came upon it to look for, you know, hosts for Amanet. Because that's how the whole thing started, right? After Ra. I always assumed it was a random dialing up and, and they happened to hit upon Earth. What do you think, Malika? That was my guess. Yeah. That it was random. Yeah. And this all, it also set up the relationship with O'Neill and Hammond, especially in that uh, boardroom scene where Hammond finally just tells Kennedy to go to hell. They're not going to operate or they're not going to use Kowalski to learn information about the gold. I think that's when they finally start to trust Hammond as a, as a viable boss of the SG-1 team or of Stargate Command. And O'Neill's like insistent insubordination, which I have a hard time believing would just be tolerated, but I've never been in the Air Force, so I don't know. But his like tendency to just pipe up and make comments and Hammond having to be like, Colonel, every five minutes. Yeah, he, O'Neill must have gotten results back in the day like he's proven to be a, a good soldier and he gets the job done because he he gets away with so much crap in, mm-hmm. in this episode and in later episodes too i have a hard time believing that the u.s government would like allow an alien to just be part of the frontline u.s military team and not use him for like study and experimentation seems utterly unbelievable Especially President Clinton. But it's he's not just like an alien. I mean, he's not just like an alien entity. He actually has an alien, even if he is a good alien <laughs> and on the, the good guy's side, our side, supposedly, he has a malevolent force in his belly, right? So even more reason to want to study him. I mean, he's a potential danger. This is belly snake is a potential danger. Yeah, taking time bomb. Especially what happened, like, isn't that exactly what happened with Kowalski? It was like some Jafaz, some, you know, just jumped out and ghouled at him, right? Like, wouldn't they be a little concerned that the same thing was going to happen if Teal got, like, mortally injured? I don't know. You just, like, let's go to other planets with this ghoul and see how, let's assume it's all going to work out. Maybe they could put something on his belly, like some kind of belt kind of a thing. So if he gets, if, if something happens to Teal, it won't jump out at Carter or Neil or Daniel. MacGyver it. Put some duct tape on it. It would totally work. <laughs> it That's very impenetrable. 
like this whole scene of um, when O'Neill is in Teal's, I guess, I don't know if it's a quarters or his cell. He's clearly not free to leave, but it's kind of like a room where he is staying and they have this whole heart to heart where he's, you know, apologizes to Tilk that he's a prisoner and he's being treated the way he's being treated. And I thought it was like an interesting, like way to develop their relationship and also like really indicative of both of their characters. When I first saw this episode, I was a little surprised that O'Neill had that viewpoint of the world, that he was progressive enough to recognize that that his world might not be so kind to aliens or the other. I really continued to like O'Neill at that point when he said that to Tilk. Yeah, O'Neill's whole character is is interesting because he, he comes across as this like, you know, like he'll do what, what needs to get done. Like he seems like a pessimist and a pragmatist and he'll, you know, but he doesn't blindly follow orders, right? As, as we shall see, like he doesn't follow the orders that he doesn't think are ethical. And so it's a little hard to pin down what his worldview is, you know, like he's not your typical military, you know, us versus them kind of guy. He's not. And he, he uses humor to disarm and to uh, deflect, especially that situation with in the infirmary with Kowalski. <laughs> Kowalski's dying and uh, he wants a stereo. It's, it's, it's almost like he probably uses humor to cope with a lot of hard situations, which many people do, including probably us. But it, but it's hard to just pinpoint his 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 character when he's always joking. So Malika, as a newbie to Stargate, as a Stargate virgin, if you will, okay. <laughs> what is your initial impressions of both Teal'c and O'Neill? Well, as far as O'Neill, I do think that this is the first time that we actually see his humanity. I mean, just like Sam said, it was he uses humor to deflect, but you kind of see that there's a good person at least in episode one, that there's a good person under there. But this one, I really, in this episode, I really feel that he shows a lot of his humanity, especially the way he treats Kowalski when they figure out what's going on with Kowalski. And you can see that the re- the relationship between the two of them and how close they were. You don't often see male characters, especially military male characters, with that kind of sensitivity. And I was surprised to see how the writers wrote him, especially in this episode, because last episode, it was all action and stuff like that, and kind of getting to know everybody. But this one was really more of a, what is O'Neill's internal dialogue and uh, actual personality? And I thought that that was really well written. And one of the things that that we talked about earlier is I was really surprised that a woman didn't help write this, his character in episode two, because it was deep. It was like, you know, showed humanity. And you don't usually see that in a, in a military man's character, especially so soon in a season. As far as Tilk, who I will never be able to pronounce his name, he seems very understanding. Uh, I wouldn't be so understanding. I'd be like, get me out of this jail cell, right? Mm-hmm. Like I just saved your life. What the fuck? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I saved your life. I'm willing to give you all the information I know to, so you can destroy this other race of people who is trying to destroy you. But yeah. hey, it's going to come around. No spoilers, but at the end of the episode. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's okay. Yeah. He's going to get his own little uniform. And his so, staff weapon back too. Right. Also kind of weird. You think they'd like disarm him for the first few missions, see how it goes. Yeah. And in fact, I don't think I've ever seen Tilk use a gun, like a handgun or a, or the a semi-automatic, whatever they use. 
I don't know guns. Yeah, I mean, no, this is not really a spoiler, but in the like much later seasons, I think like season nine, he he starts doing like two gun, like a two, <laughs> like one one massive giant automatic gun in each hand, and like shoots like both sides at once, which seems like not the way you would want to shoot. No, that seems <laughs> impractical. But it probably looks pretty awesome. <laughs> it looks he looks like a big tough guy. Yes, so he he does evolve in his use of weapons. So, you know, there's obviously all the like discovery of the Gould and Kowalski, but one dynamic I thought was interesting here is the Sam and Daniel dynamic, because this, this episode doesn't really showcase them very much, um, except Sam, poor Sam gets like her ass kicked. And I think if I remember correctly from like the director's cut, she actually was knocked out in the elevator, right? Like that was a real, oh wow, yeah, like she really was knocked out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't know if the the vision we see of her knocked out in the elevator is her is Amanda tapping actually knocked out unconscious I think she said it was like like her body crumples and that was really what happened well the great (laughs) choice on her part (laughs) it's like it seems like a major occupational issue oh I know yeah in fact I think maybe two scenes later we see them all assembling for a boardroom scene and you see RDA looking over at Amanda tapping and sort of touching her arm. And apparently that was him, RDA, making sure that she was okay after she hit her head. So is that a ship? Can we do a shipper alert for that? Yes, we can. <laughs> um, a, a brief interlude in the shipper's corner. Yes. Malika, <laughs> Rose and I believe that that was, when, <laughs> that was when RDA was first showing his concern, or uh, O'Neill showing his concern to Carter. I think he probably just wanted to check if she wasn't actually dead. <laughs> but sure we're, we're gonna convert you to our shipper side sooner or later yes we that. are yeah <laughs> I, I guess as, as a, a good colonel he has to make sure all of his people his subordinates are are still alive not dead yeah not dead watch well, she's i mean i don't know what happens since i have i've only watched the season i mean episode two but watch she's going to in the future she, from all of these stunts where she is being knocked out, she's going to go crazy, shoot everybody on the set, like in real life, and probably kill herself. And they're going to do an autopsy and find out she has that football. CTE. Yeah. yeah. These people would definitely have CTE, the amount of times they get like thrown around and stuff. Yeah. Oh, yes. And arthritis as well, because they've probably <laughs> broken every bone in their body at one point. But they're fine. You know, they seem fine in their peak physical condition. And this is also interesting, Shipper Alert, you know, like, so he's like, grabs Carter, O'Neill comes and is like, what the hell's going on? And he instructs everyone not to shoot because he doesn't want them to hurt Carter. And I thought that was interesting. But let's go back to that elevator scene. So everyone's running around trying to get Kowalski, who's just thundering through this facility. And Daniel's standing there saying, yeah, someone just decided to stop the elevator. I'm not sure what's happening here. Daniel seems a little clueless this whole episode. I mean, he has like four lines, but they're all clueless lines. And most of them are about Share. Yeah. Of course. (laughs) Which I get they're trying to establish he loves his wife, he misses her, yada, yada. That's like his whole reason for being on this team. But like, yeah, everything's like, I can't sleep because I'm thinking about Share and they're operating on Kowalski. Like, oh, this gives me hope for Share. And like, I don't know, maybe you can be a little more focused on what's going on in front of you. (laughs) He misses those kisses, I think. Don't we all? By the time the elevator door opens, he's back to his self. The gold has lost control. And he's like, I don't know what the hell happened. She's hurt. I don't know what happened. And that's when they put him on. What what did you call him? Like the massage table? The rotating massage table. 
<laughs> it does seem unnecessary to have him. I guess if he's strapped in, they have to make sure his head is in a position that he could breathe and not be. But he could turn his head <laughs> and breathe on, breathe on his side. That would be like a really bad neck ache. Do you, do you think they had to find a gurney and cut a hole in it so his head could fit through? I mean, did they measure to make sure his head and his face would fit through? How comfortable is this thing too? Did they pat yeah. it? Just... It does look like a massage table, yeah. Yeah, it looked like a massage, like an old-timey massage table that they just put on like a gyroscope. <laughs> like, how do you just have that lying around an underground bunker? Come on now. <laughs> that was my question too. This is a military facility. Why do they have a massage table there? Was, I think it was a modified gurney. And then somebody was definitely in charge of cutting a hole in there for his face. That some poor airman was in charge of that. Probably the same person who had to go clean up Kowalski. They just left him there. I also thought Hammond was a little unnecessarily short with Dr. Warner. First of all, he's like, you know, tell me who you need. I'll get them here in 24 hours. And then he says stuff like, you know, just give me the odds, doctor. And I think this conversation is over. I'm like, what does this guy do? He's just doing his job. Warner seemed a little out of his depth in this episode. And he actually botched up the surgery. Like he missed part of the, the snake too. And, and it, it seems like they need another doctor. I wonder if they're going to get one. Maybe. I don't, does Warner ever come back? Is he, he replaced? He may or may not be replaced, but he does appear in future episodes. And he said he's head of surgery or he's the main surgeon or something. And you have like the entire resources of the world, right? There's some pretty damn good surgeons in the world. Yeah. And I think in later episodes, they, they bring in other experts but they couldn't bring in someone to uh, operate on Kowalski. Back in the, in the massage table situation. And then they tried to talk to it, which doesn't go so well, I would say. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. You get the whole like, destroy you. I'll destroy you. Release me. Blah, blah, blah. You do get a sense of the gold personality though. Like there's complete arrogant beings who think they're in control of everything. And they, they have no experience on what it's like to not be in control. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting that they had to rile Kowalski up for the, the Gaul to appear. Yeah, like they had to make him lose lose control. Do you get the sense that this Gaul is uh, maybe more of a child Gaul, and that's why he can't take complete control? Or is this an adult Gaul? I think they explained that it's, he's an, it was immature. He wasn't ready for a host yet, but he, because okay. I guess his Jaffa died, he had a, he jumped into one. Okay, so it, it was it was from a Jaffa then? Yeah. Okay. Which makes Teal's like participation all the more like, wouldn't you be concerned about that? Okay, so then the next briefing, this is when, you know, the whole SG1 is there and Hammond and Kennedy and he's doing his like, hey, let's not take it out. Let's just leave it in there and study it. And that leads to that whole conversation where Hammond's like, what kind of an officer are you? Where again, you see the divide between these, these powers that be and the good guys trying to do the right thing, even in the face of these circumstances. Yeah, and I, I thought our DA did a really good job in that briefing room. When Kennedy was giving his his speech, you could see RDA in the background sort of fidgeting and looking over at Hammond to see if he's buying it. And then finally, when, when Hammond said, you know, um, snowball's chance in hell, you have RDA giving a little yes to himself. I thought that was pretty good acting on his part. What did you guys think of the uh, special effects when that thing came out of his belly? For mid-90s, it's not bad. 
And I think it's it's it was not CGI, right? That was no, not that was so. real. It's the like it's the jelly fluid part of it that really grosses me out the most. Yes, the the, the transparent yeah. worm thing. It, yeah, they they did a good job with that actual worm or the snake. And then they CGI them. I think starting in, se- in season three, season two, end of season two. I don't think it works. I think the real one is better. So we do the surgery. I do agree that I think he kind of fucks up the surgery, right? You would think you'd want to take the whole thing out and not just <laughs> sever the pieces that are going into the brain. I don't know. Since you don't know what the hell it is or how it works. But there's There was no chance that that was going to be successful surgery. When you look and he has like, it's like three inch high hole. He has to reach into it. <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't get that either. You're not okay. going to get all of it if you just, come on now. <laughs> like, how does that even make sense? It didn't even, there wasn't even a purpose. It was bound to fail. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> that, yeah, is, is that... Is, is that common in, in surgery, like realistic in surgeries that they no. have? This? I didn't think so. I've watched a lot of ER. <laughs> Which is so totally really how things go. Yeah, I've never seen that they build a little scaffolding around the incision point. <laughs> and then there's like, only one hand can go in at a time. And you can't see anything because there's a it's on every side. They need this huge light that's shining into this hole that they've made. And then they pull out this, what, this two foot long, <laughs> yeah. disgusting snake thing. Yeah. I, I find it hard to believe that that thing actually fit in Kowalski. Well, and like, so he's like severs the, what do you say? I'm severing them, the tendrils or whatever, that or the filaments that are going into the brain. I'm like, I think you want to take those out and not just sever them, right? Like, I'm no doctor. But I think you want to take them out and not just be like, okay, we're ready to close. (laughs) This seems like this would be like a 15 hour surgery, not like 30 minutes and we're done. Yeah. You think a nurse should be like patting his head at some point. (laughs) It it seems like it was like 10 minutes. Oops, I'm done. Yeah. Seemed a bit half-assed. So no wonder they didn't get the gold because it was really not a very good surgery. So poor Kowalski. So I guess the, the, idea is that he never actually was Kowalski again, right? After they attempted the surgery, the ghoul becomes one with him. And every time we see Kowalski after this, he's fully ghouled And it's just the symbiote pretending to be him, right? So his friend died on the table, as we learned. So we get to the Hammond and Kennedy sort of confrontation in Hammond's office where he says, don't let the door hit your ass on the way out. Basically, fuck off and never want to see you again. Uh, and that he's taking Teal'c with him. I kind of wish that Hammond had fought a little more for, for Teal'c. That's that's the one the one shortcoming I, I find a, about Hammond's character in this episode is that he didn't fight a little more for Tilk, especially when he knows, or maybe he just knew that he was going to call the president and this wasn't going to happen. I don't that's know. Right. Hammond's pretty. He he brings out that red phone <laughs> all the time. I think this would have been a perfect point for him to bring it out, just slam it in Kennedy's face. Tilk or Kowalski has his minute alone with Tilk where he tries to kill him. Didn't really try to kill him very hard though. Considering he says, then you should die. And then he just strangles him for a minute and leaves. And Teal'c is fine. Yes, it's a TV strangle. <laughs> yeah, I think in real life, strangling someone takes a, a good amount of time and effort too. Not that I know. Um, and it does take more than a minute. It does take more than a minute, especially someone like as enormous and strong as Teal'c. Oh, yes. We, we, we don't see Teal'c unclothed until later on, but he is quite well built. 
He is a formidable dude. And I met him in person and he is equally as formidable in person. Oh yes, I, I have no doubt. Yeah. A picture. At a convention, I have a picture of it. Me, him, Amanda Tapping, and my friend. Oh, he's wow. a big, he's a huge guy. He could easily like bench press me in with one hand. <laughs> All of these guys are are pretty tall. I didn't realize that until uh, we looked up their heights. But uh, tapping, um, yeah, tapping's really tall. Daniel's tall too. They're all tall. I, I didn't realize it because they were just all tall. Yeah, I felt like a mini person when I was next to the two of them. And then we have the scene where Kowalski, meet, Kowalski meets his unfortunate end, where he struggles and holds his head. And so I still am not exactly sure how this works, but he holds his head in the wormhole. And then they shut off the wormhole. So presumably whatever part of him was in the wormhole is just like disintegrated and that kills the gold. Because the gold does pop out at the end. Right. And burn up in, in smoke. Well, I think they, they kill the host by chopping off his head. Oh. And, and then nothing, nothing to and then that, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But before that, whenever I see this, this, this scene, I always say, wow, Tilk, that is a wide stance. His legs are just spread three feet <laughs> in front of this wormhole. It's, it's just, it's crazy. And then, and then Kowalski walks up to him and just lets out this huge roar and just goes for a Tilk. It's almost, if it wasn't so sad, it would be almost comical. So the idea is also the Gould gives you like superhuman strength. So right. do they both have superhuman strength? So they're equal matched or is the the actual ghoul at an advantage over a Jaffa. I don't know. I always thought that Jaffas were stronger than normal people and, and also stronger than gaulded people too. Without their fancy gadgets. Right. But they, they did seem to be equally matched. And then I was also surprised that O'Neill was so willing to kill Kowalski at that point. <laughs> yeah, like hold him there. Yeah, like hold him there. Let's kill this motherfucker sort of thing. yeah yeah and then he said I mean he says my friend died on the table so I'm like I'm I think at that point he realized his friend's gone right there's nothing they, they tried the surgery didn't work they tried the half-ass surgery didn't work so he wanted to like Kowalski had said I want to wake up as myself or not at all so he wanted to fulfill his friend's wish that he not be allowed to live as a golded person right but even though you can say that intellectually in Walking Dead when Carol's daughter, no, sorry for the spoilers. <laughs> this was um, season two, right? So I, that's, it was like 10 years ago. You should have already watched it. <laughs> this is your punishment. But when her daughter is a zombie, it was hard. She had so much trouble and she knew she had already been killing zombies for a really long time and seen them kill lots of people. She knew that her daughter, number one, was, it was dead and was not coming back. And yet she still hesitated, right? So you give, you give O'Neill what, like 15 minutes, 20 minutes to process, you know, that his friend is dead. He still, he was like, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> I don't care. He's the military guy. That's what he does. But still, you would always have that hope. Maybe if we could just put him back on the massage table and <laughs> pull out another little worm, maybe, maybe he would come back. Or like keep them in a cell, you know, because they do, I mean, they do eventually get better at the removing. Maybe keep them in a jail cell and for a couple of years until they perfect the technology to pull out those golds. Yeah, he, he does kind of give up on Kowalski pretty quickly. I guess that's just part of his character. Except Carter, he never gives up on her. Yes. 
<laughs> Returning to Shipper's Corner, you're right. He does not, he never gives up on Carter. She could be lying there bleeding. He never gives up on his team. Yeah, but 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 Kowalski was part of his team. Yeah. I think I'm gonna go with he decided he was dead. There was no hope, and he wanted and he knew his friend would not want to live like that. Maybe, yeah, maybe he knew Kowalski better than we do. At the end of the episode. First of all, you get the whole, like, well, there's hope for Sharae and Skara. Then you get the scene, the shot of SG-1 about to go through the wormhole in their first mission. And so for me, this is the beginning of SG-1, right? This, this episode and, you know, Children of the Gods, it's all prologue as, as setting up the scene for what happens. And then you have the, the glorious team ready to embark on their many journeys. So this is the part where we assign a rating to the episode zero through seven chevrons, eight chevrons if it's an exceptionally good episode. So Malika, what is your rating for this episode? Overall, I would give it like four chevrons, but due to the strength of the prop department in making such an awesome massage, rotating massage table, I give it five chevrons. Sounds good. I would give it four chevrons. It's a necessary episode because it sets up the backstory of the Gaould. Uh, we need to know this going forward. I would give it three chevrons. Yeah, I think it's sort of necessary. It it does the it fulfills its role in furthering the story, but it's definitely not one of my favorites. So I think it's a solid three. I, I do like that we get a little bit of Kowalski and the poor guy gets, doesn't have any more further storylines for the most part after this. So that is kind of, I'll give it three chat runs for him. So how would this episode be different if it was in, t- in modern television? What would be different about it? What do you think? You know, there's a little bit of like an old boys club element to this where you have all like, you know, the Kowalski and O'Neill and Ferretti. There's a lot of this like, yeah, there's like sort of a lot of like old military boys club that I think might not translate to that well today. I would agree with that. but. Overall, it wasn't as problematic as the other episodes, but I I would agree that there's a lot of toxic masculinity in this one, but there's also a lot of soft moments between O'Neill and Kowalski. So I like that part. If a version of this episode were shown today, there would be more of a moment between Kowalski and O'Neill, especially at the end. I think O'Neill would be given more time to mourn his friend rather than just saying, hold him up, and then he's dead. So next week we get to see one of those missions. I wish it was a little bit better of an episode, but we will talk about it. We have much to talk about. Next week is Emancipation, season one, episode three. All right. See you next week. All right, see you next week. Bye. Bye. MacGyver it. Like us and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. Even if you don't like us, you can still like and subscribe. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Probing the Wormhole, on Twitter at Probing Wormhole. Also visit us on our website, probingthewormhole.com. Thank you.